My commentary to the Facebook group on Part 1, Book 2 involved three posts that I'll share with you here. If you'd like to see the discussion of these posts, you can follow the links below. First, I discussed what I regard as the essential substance of Part 1, Book 2. In this chapter, Hugo makes clear what it is that the Royalists are seeking in a leader for Vendée. And then, in a scene with nail-biting action, breathtaking description, and even metaphysical rumination, establishes that the peasant general is that man. It's clear from the moment that the peasant boards the Claymore, an English merchant ship manned by French royalists and stealthily outfitted for war, that he is no peasant. His clothing shows a studied and deliberate verisimilitude to that of the typical Breton peasant. He was conducted to the boat by a lord, attended by a bodyguard, assisted by a nobleman, and called cousin by a prince. He's installed in the captain's quarters, and the captain vows to protect his identity even at the cost of his own life. And the bodyguard who conducted him to the ship, a double agent, betrays him to the Republic, sending ahead a letter that says this, quote, peasant with aristocratic hands should be guillotined. Meanwhile, he's being watched by La Vieuxville and Boisberthelot, who discuss the qualities needed in a leader. He must be a lawyer, who will harass the enemy, dispute every mill, bush, ditch, and pebble. He must be a prince, for great acts of war require nobility in the man who performs them. He must be merciless, the sort of man who would nicely shoot three hundred blues after making them dig their own graves, or, if necessary, capture his own son and blow his brains out. He must understand that peasants want to be led in the peasant manner, and that you can't transform those savages into soldiers of the line. Boisberthelot says, Do you think he'll be enough? Provided he's good, said La Vieuxville. In other words, provided he's ferocious, said Boisberthelot. Yes, that's what we need. This is a merciless war. It's time for bloodthirsty men. Then the crew is confronted with the Tormentum Belli, the war cannon, an instrument of war turning on the war makers. As a consequence of the negligence of one of the gunners, it wreaks epic havoc on the ship, cutting down everything in its path, crushing men like flies, fracturing the mass, and making breaches in the ship's planking. And the same man who let it loose, aided by the fearless peasant, heroically masters it. Then we see beyond a doubt that this peasant is the ship's highest authority, and we learn the character of that authority, as he rewards the gunner for his heroism, and, for his negligence, orders him shot. He is ferocious. Vendée has a leader. The ship is devastated, its best gunners dead, its cargo destroyed, its cannons dismounted, its masts damaged, and its ribs cracked. And in its devastated condition, unequipped either for flight or fight, it comes upon the necessity of both, a reef and an enemy fleet. With tranquil resolve, the crew prepare to die fighting. But first they wish to save the peasant general, and ask for a volunteer to row him across a stormy sea to safety. 
The chapter's conclusion is characterized by the sort of spine-tingling cliffhanger that takes a master like Hugo. I am the brother of the man you ordered shot. And the drama has only just begun. I also shared with the Facebook group a recommendation to do what I'm calling painting pictures. As a reader, I was long guilty of a bad habit. I tended to breeze through descriptive passages, particularly descriptions of setting, eager to get back to dialogue. I'm not exactly sure why, but I also would not be at all surprised if many of you do the same. I became better at forcing my focus between segments of dialogue, but there was some amount of force necessary. But recently, that changed dramatically for an interesting reason. I discovered a promising young artist whose style appeals to me, and I decided as a birthday present to myself to commission him to do a still life for me. It's in the works now, and I'll share it with the group when it's complete. I had an abstract vision for the still life, which I wanted to convey a particular theme, so I started thinking hard about how best it could be conveyed visually. I was very motivated to turn my abstraction into a picture. I'm not an artist myself, so this was a new experience for me. Soon after the still life was conceived, I taught 93 to my students at Van Damme Academy. And though Hugo was always able to command my attention with his description more than most authors, this time my experience was remarkably different. Throughout the novel, I kept thinking, and even often said to my students, that should be a painting. Perhaps because of the process I went through in conceiving the still life, I began routinely painting detailed mental pictures of the descriptions I read. Here's a notable example. As you hear it, try to visualize it as an 18th century oil painting. The sky was blanketed with clouds, but these clouds were no longer touching the sea. In the east appeared a pallor that was dawn. In the west, another pallor, growing fainter, that was the setting of the moon. These two pallors, facing each other on the horizon, formed two narrow streaks of wan light between the gloomy sea and the somber sky. Against these two streaks of light, one could see black, motionless, erect silhouettes. To the west, against the moonlit sky, were three tall rocks, standing upright like Celtic veneers. To the east, against the pale morning horizon, rose eight sails spaced out in a formidable array. Reading it this time, I summoned a distinct visual image of that sky blanketed with clouds, those narrow streaks of wan light to both east and west, and the dark dangers silhouetted against them. I would love to be able to commission an artist to paint that scene. But instead, I had to content myself with images I could find with a Google search, and if you go to the Facebook page, you can see them. I also shared my favorite lines from Part 1, Book 2 with the Facebook group. I found favorite upon favorite upon favorite in the description of the loose cannon. It is a machine that transforms itself into a monster, inanimate yet appearing to have caprices, inert yet spiteful, massive, yet agile, dead, yet seemingly alive, something that must be stopped, yet must be avoided. 
Here are a few of the lines that made me pause in wonder, both at the phenomenon they described and the sheer poetry of the description. Nothing is more inexorable than the anger of the inanimate. How can one combat an inclined plane which has caprices? A soul. Strangely enough, the canon seemed to have one too, but a soul of hatred and rage. That blindness appeared to have eyes. Another favorite passage of mine was the words of Boisberthelot upon facing certain death. Sir, the preparations have been made. We are now holding fast to our grave. We won't let go. We're prisoners of either the squadron or the reef. We have no choice but to yield to the enemy or founder on the rocks. One resource is left to us, to die. It's better to fight than to be wrecked. I'd rather be shot than drowned. As far as death is concerned, I prefer fire to water. I am deeply inspired by his placid heroism, his serenity in the face of disaster. And though I myself will probably never face a choice between shipwreck and combat, I will certainly face times that I do not want to go down without a fight. Such scenes become a part of your soul, a sort of moral repertoire, that are inevitably part of you when you face challenges. But even more, you can specifically recall such words as inspiration. I'll remember, it's better to fight than to be wrecked. I'd rather be shot than drowned. As far as death is concerned, I prefer fire to water. Add that line to the image of our oil painting described in the previous post, and you'd have no ordinary office motivational poster. If you decide to join the Facebook group discussion, I'd love to hear about your favorites. <laughs>